Welcome everyone. Thank you for coming. Um, sorry for the slightly late start. My name is uh, Dominic Parvis Brookshaw. I'm an assistant professor of Persian literature in the Department of Comparative Literature here at Stanford. Before I introduce our speaker tonight, we have three further events this quarter. The first, and there's an information sheet at the back. The first is um, Thursday next week, Thursday, May the 9th. The same room, same time, 6.30. Um, we're showing the film Shahriman Pizza by Ala Mohsani, My City Pizza, which is an excellent documentary. I recommend it to you if you haven't seen it. Um, the Thursday after that, Thursday, May the 16th, same time, same room. We have Persis Karim from San Jose State University, who will be talking about writing the diaspora, Iranian Americans, and the emergence of literary voice. And then two weeks after that, Thursday, May the 30th, same time, same room, Jeanette Alfari from the University of California, Santa Barbara, will be talking about Ali Akbar de Khoda and the discourse on religious reform in Iran. So our speaker tonight, Turaj Daryoyi, is the Howard C. Baskerville Professor in the History of Iran and the Persianate World and the Associate Director of the Dr. Samuel M. Jordan Center for Persian Studies and Culture at the University of California, Irvine. He was born in Tehran in 1967, received his PhD in 1999 from UCLA. His work focuses primarily on ancient Iran, but he's also interested in Iranian languages and religions. He has many publications, especially for someone so young. Some of his books include the forthcoming Excavating an Empire, the Achaemenid Persian Empire in Longue Durée, the Oxford History of Iran, Oxford University Press, which appeared last year, Sasanian Persia, The Rise and Fall of an Empire, published in London in 2009. Surut Sasanian, The Fall of the Sasanians, Tehran in 2005. And uh, also some texts um, and studies of Pahlavi um, Middle Persian writing. His lecture tonight is on the, as you see, uh, projected the glories of ancient Iran, its use and abuse in the 19th and 20th centuries. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, I'd like to thank the Iranian Studies Program at Stanford and Professor Milani, as well as Professor Brookshaw, who made that kind introduction. Now, okay, that's what I was waiting for. Uh, if, I hope you can hear me, and it's absolute dark, but that's just fine, I still can read. Uh, I am mainly a historian of pre-modern uh, Iran, or the Iranian world. And even better, well, no, that's okay. You, you want to turn that off, that's okay. Uh, and so what I'm talking about today are not the objects and the history of antiquity, but rather their use, and you might say sometimes abuse, uh, by people and successive dynasties who have tried to shift uh, Iran's past towards their own goal and interests. So that is what I am discussing here today. 
We begin with the Qajar dynasty and Fath Ali Shah, the second Qajar monarch, who, when was being crowned, chose a crown that was constructed under the title of Kayani crown. This is significant that a Qajar dynast had thought of connecting himself to the mythical past of ancient Iran. That is the Kianid dynasty that was the main actors and kings in the Shahnameh, the great Persian epic of Iran. In a sense, there was a hearkening back to the glories of the past. He not only chose the Kiani crown, but as you see on the right-hand side, he chose to have rock reliefs and inscriptions by the ancient rock reliefs of the Sasanian kings here in Taghe Bustan in Kermanshah, next to Lady Anahita pouring uh, water right down here at the foot of Khosrow Paris. And then again at uh, Cheshma Ali in Ray, and then few other rock reliefs, which was really a revival of this ancient practice, which was begun with the Qajars. By the time of the rule of Muhammad Shah Qajar, the next uh, uh, ruler, something significant had happened in terms of the study of ancient Iran. And that was Sir Henry Rawlinson, who had, uh, as uh, a representative of the British government, traveled through Iran, had come across uh, the rock relief of Behistun, which belonged to the great Achaemenid king Darius I, which was composed somewhere or written around 520 to 518 BCE. He flung himself from the cliff several times. He almost died. But he was finally able to make a copy of this rock relief and inscription, which you can see a drawing of on the lower left-hand side. And between the period when he first presented his findings in 1838 to the Asiatic Society, till the final presentation and publication of the text in 1843, the decipherment of the cuneiform script was under its way. It's because of this Behistun inscription that we now were able to have access to the Babylonian and somewhat Elamite and other uh, languages that were written with the cuneiform script. But the most important scholar of antiquity for the Iranians was Muhammad Hassan Khan Etemad Saltane otherwise known as Anisodole. His work shows the earliest scholarly approach using both Perso-Arabic and Greco-Latin sources available to him at his time. His interest in geography and history uh, resulted in the publication of several local geographical and historical works, including the massive geographical treatise Merat al-Boldan and um, in his work, he mentions the European travelers who had made the journey to the Behistun inscription in Kermanshah and relates the Persian and European views about the identity of the personages on the rock relief, as you see. 
He is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, Iranian to identify the trilingual inscription of Darius I in Merat al-Buldan, and he provides perhaps the earliest translation. That is a page from the Merat al-Buldan where you can see uh, the Persian translation that he has provided based on Sir Henry Rawlinson's translation, which was presented to the Qajar Shah. In fact, if one looks at Merat al-Buldan, one sees that a very clear and a very, I think, good uh, exposition of the inscription, its qualities and whatnot, have been written down in this uh, work. And I think it's quite laudable for a 19th century report on a cuneiform inscription that had just been published. With the coming of Nasreddin Shah Qajar, there was a further interest in Iran's antiquity. And we tend to uh, usually uh, disassociate the Qajars with the interest in ancient Iran. Uh, we are mainly focused on the Pahlavis, but in fact, what we do have is from very early on Qajar interest uh, in the past, in a very different past, one might say, than the Pahlavis, but still an interest. And with Nasreddin Shah, we begin to see something very interesting. In terms of archaeological excavations and reconnaissance in the 19th century, we can go back actually to 1859, during the reign of this monarch. The site, of, the site known as Khorhe was the first Persian point of archaeological investigation. In 1892, during Nasreddin Shah's trip to Iraq, or Iraq, he ordered the site to be photographed. So we have a photo photograph of it. Not only the, mo the monument was photographed, but one can see that the first Persian archaeological report of an ancient site was composed what I call the first four Persian excavation team. And as you can see, uh, the names from right to, le to left, uh, Mirza, uh, sorry, Ali Reza Khan Mahalati, Hussein Khan Pishkhadmat, Agha Yusuf Akkas, and Arif Islambuli. They spent three days at the site to photograph and wrote the report. There were 15 or 16 locals involved in the excavation, along with 13 children. This is based on another picture that we have, so I just counted uh, the number of people present under the two pillars that we have. The person behind the organization is our very own Etemad Saltaneh, who you see him uh, by Nasreddin Shah uh, city. Etemad Saltaneh's involvement in the excavations and its outcome is monumental for the self-image of the Qajars themselves. The recent excavations uh, conducted by Mehdi Rahbar, I'm talking about 10-15 years ago, of Khorhe, uh, he has identified the site mainly as a Parthian or Arsacid site. And this seems to have been the identification at the time of the, our, recon, our Persian reconnaissance team, uh, identifying it as Arsacid and later written down by Etimot Saltaneh. Although Arsacid studies compared to the Achaemenids and the Sasanians are uh, lagging far behind, it's interesting that the first Persian history of antiquity or pre-Islamic Iran was dedicated to the Arsacids and written by Etimotu. Saltaneh. 
But the question is why should Etamad al-Saltaneh spend so much time and choose the Arsacids among the ancient dynasties of Iran for such extensive writing? The answer is that Nasreddin Shah was not much fond of his Turkic ancestry. And it was Etamad al-Saltaneh who had suggested to him that the Qajars were actually from the Arsacid line. And so the king had ordered a history of the Arsacids to be written. After all, the Arsaces and the Turkic tribes, the Qajar family, came from the same region, from Central Asia or the east of Caspian. And somehow these things were fused together under this new interest in ancient Iran. And Etemad the Sultanist seems to have had uh, this interest. This is via um, uh, uh, somewhat of an oral tradition from Iraj Afshar to Shahriyar Ad, who published the work on Khorhe. Moving on in the Qajar period, in the 1880s, Fursatuddole Shirazi, a native of Fars, took on another sort of reconnaissance, which was in line with the European adventurers and travelers, such as Pietro de Laval in the 17th century, Jean-Baptiste Chardin, and Karsten Niebuhr in the 18th century. The survey of the monuments of the province of Fars is important in that a native who had a well-versed uh, ideas about geography of the region took on this monumental task. The remaining monuments were drawn, explained, and then published. Here we see actually uh, an image of Persepolis, parts of it. And here in Persian, he has written that this winged uh, personage is a Fravahar. And that is significant in that until the 19th century, this image was not associated with Fravahar. In fact, it is Limji Hataria, a Zoroastrian uh, who came from India uh, to help uh, his brethren in Iran, uh, who brought this idea of a Fravahar or a winged genie and associating it with this um, uh, icon. And uh, we see that that information has been certainly passed on to Forsat uh, of Shiraz. By the end of the Qajar dynasty, when Ahmad Shah uh, was uh, being crowned in 1914, the interest in the Achaemenids had continued. If you look at the stamps uh, minted in 1914 uh, of the time of the Qajars, in fact, Persepolis is a point of interest. Of course, this idea of these antiquities uh, really circulated among the nobility and the few elite. The populace at large were not privy to these findings and ideas. For the Qajars, what mattered was the traditional nativist history of Iran, where the Pishtadians and the Kianians begun history, ruled over this great land called Iran, and fought their enemies. Of course, this text was uh, nothing but based on the Shahnameh. That is, the Qajars had a uh, Persian epic view of the past and antiquity, however much the Achaemenids were coming to light, however slowly. This would change. By the coming of Reza Shah and the Pahlavi dynasty, we began to see much more interest in the Achaemenid monuments in a different way. Sardar Sepah, before becoming the first monarch, 
had already begun to show his intense interest of antiquity, specifically the um, Persepolis or Takht Jamshid. Reza Shah visited Persepolis in 1922, and we are told he had ordered a wall to be constructed around this great ancient world capital. As you can see, this is the, probably what had been uh, ordered by the king. Mifarmayan bayad divar bekeshan ke ziyad barin ziyad ziyad teraz in takht jamshid ra kharab nakonet. They have ordered to, to make a wall so uh, Persepolis is not destroyed furthermore. So that is the first, uh, uh, at least, photograph where the Shah is proudly looking over uh, Persepolis with his retinue, that we begin a very uh, more interesting and intense interest in the Achaemenite world. Reza Shah, during the end of his reign, uh, again visited Persepolis. It seems uh, that this uh, capital had some significance for our Pahlavi monarch. Uh, we can see in the pictures here at least that his intense interest and looks at the details, uh, which along with the crown prince, Muhammad Reza Pahlavi, uh, is accompanying him. Uh, between 1922 and 1937, the last time he visited Persepolis, the University of Chicago, the Oriental Institute, had conducted surveys of the monument, and the great world capital was coming to light. It was during the time of Reza Shah that acknowledged that indeed this was an amazing capital, a center uh, in antiquity had been fully understood, not only in the West, but by the Iranians as well. Of course, these were mainly due uh, to the works of several people. The most importantly, of course, Ernst Herzfeld, who in his dissertation in 1906 had uh, certainly shown that the tomb of Cyrus belongs to Cyrus and what Pasargade is. Uh, and also his excavations at Persepolis had been very important and instrumental in propagating uh, the Achaemenid world uh, during the Pahlavi reign. His son, Muhammad Reza Shah Pahlavi, when he came to the throne, his interest in Persepolis uh, remained. However, uh, we began to see a major shift in the 1950s from location to location and from histories to histories. The second Pahlavi's interest was mainly in Pasargate and Cyrus the Great. And hence, the old traditional narrative contained in the Shahnameh as according, uh, was being uh, forsaken. And not only Persepolis, but now a new location, a new monument. Uh, Cyrus the Great's tomb became the focus of Muhammad Reza Shah, Pahlavi, and the Pahlavi monarchy. Uh, Dr. Uh, Ali Ansari has written wonderfully in his new book on um, Iranian nationalism on these shifting attentions uh, in modern Iranian history to the past. Of course, the works had begun in the 1950s by Ali Asami, whose image I should have put later on, but here is Mr. Ali Sami. But also Professor David Stronach, who is at Berkeley, 
was professor in Near Eastern Archaeology. And it culminated, I think, the excavations from 1961 to 1963. Uh, I can be corrected. And then in 1978, uh, the book actually was published. But already in the 50s, Muhammad Reza Shah Pahlavi had planned for a great celebration, a sort of fanfare uh, in these ancient monuments. But it seems things were slowly done. Nothing was being done. And so, two years after his coronation, in 1969, he ordered that within a year there should be celebrations. And so the court scrambled, in effect, to put together a great pageant, a great ceremony. However, it took two years. That is, it was in 1971 that the 2500th anniversary of the Iranian monarchy was staged. I think this coin is, uh, uh, which may be later, but still very much, I think, provocative and telling of uh, this new vision of history of Iran. That is, it's not a 6,000-year history of Iran, as some Iranians like to have, uh, as mentioned in the Shahnameh and the mythical tradition, but rather a 2,500-year history of Iran. It's a truncated uh, history of Iran, uh, but it's done uh, purposefully because Cyrus is seen as the father, the protogenitor of Iranian monarchy, and uh, Muhammad Reza Shah Pahlavi as its final end, and the connection between the two was being highlighted. As you can see on this coin, of course, uh, His His Majesty Muhammad Reza Shah Pahlavi, Love of the Aryans, is on one side, uh, the inscription reads, and on the other side, of course, Cyrus, the great king, or the great Cyrus, king of kings of the Achaemenids. I don't want to say perhaps Muhammad Reza Pahlavi knew that monarchy, uh, the Iranian monarchy, would end right after him, and hence he minted this coin. But this coin certainly looks as such, where there's this idea of a beginning and an end, with Cyrus Cylinder on the reverse. Of course, uh, this newfound interest in uh, Pasar Gade. Uh, brought uh, the court as well as the king of kings uh, to the tomb of Cyrus the Great. And of course, uh, the Pahlavi monarch told the first Iranian monarch to sleep at ease because we are awake. That is, this monarchy is going to continue and uh, the Pahlavis are the mantle holders of the Cyrus tradition. In fact, this was projected in various means. Uh, if you're a stamp collector like myself, uh, you get a sense of uh, how things play out. Uh, the Pahlavi crown on the left-hand side and Cyrus Cylinder were published or minted together. In Oman, when in honor of these celebrations, they minted uh, stamps. Again, what was important was the royal family and then Pasar Gade, Pasar Gade, Cyrus Cylinder and then the rest of the Achaemenids. So with the coming of modernity, as some uh, would contend in Iran during the Pahlavi era and westernization, there came, I think, a new vision of the past that was different from the Qajars and what the Iranians traditionally knew of their past. And this was something that the Iranians were unfamiliar with at the time. Uh, I think all of these things takes some time uh, for people to digest. And I think now we have completely digested this idea. And we're much more attuned to it than 1971 uh, with the people in mass. 
what happened is uh, uh, Princess uh, Ashraf, uh, uh, she presented a replica of the Cyrus Cylinder to the UN in 1968, where it was termed as the first charter of human rights. That is how this idea came into being. Not only that, in 1968, the first human rights conference was held not in Geneva, not in Paris, but in Tehran, where the Shah and uh, the Queen attended the conference. Uh, and that certainly seemed odd for many at the time, knowing the political situation in Iran. But what the Pahlavis were trying to, of course, project a continuous 2,500-year kingship kingship of Iran, where kingship became the main focus of their propaganda. Of course, in 1979, all of this began to change. With the coming of the Islamists to power, there was certainly a, a different response to the idea of ancient Iran. Muhammad Reza Shah Pahlavi had connected himself too closely with Cyrus the Great and his tomb and perhaps his cylinder and the ideas of ancient Iran. And so uh, the first responses to this close association with the Pahlavis came in somewhat of revolutionary responses, if one may say so. The revolutionary judge, Sadr uh, Khalkhali, uh, had written a tract in 1979 in prison, exactly as the 2,500-year anniversaries were taking place. Khalkhali was in prison and writing a text which was later published under the title of The False and Murderous Cyrus, Kurusha Durugin va Janayatkar. Uh, which I was able to find a copy by some reason. Uh, here in a, about a 250 page, uh, we find uh, a clergy making every possible mistake uh, that a layperson can make when reading into ancient texts. He had read, for example, a translation, a Persian translation of Herodotus. Now, uh, this is what Mr. Khalkhali had said. This is the best example that is known. Cyrus, I quote, he was the son of a shepherd from the Mardian tribe. Yes, Herodotus gives us a version that he was, one version is that he was from the Mardian tribe, who because of extreme desire engaged in sodomy. So this idea of feminacy and uh, sodomy, how did it come about? But if you know Persian, as uh, Professor uh, Brookshaw would uh, easily tell us, the idea, the term bandit, rahzan, and banditry, rahzani, with that ezafe, had turned into rahzani, into uh, what he translated as sodomy. So very interesting mistakes, just to slander, uh, of course, Cyrus. Not only that was part of this exposition of this text, remember he's writing in prison of an anniversary of a celebration that is going out there, so you could imagine this uh, sort of uh, discourse between the two. Uh, he also uh, proclaimed that it was really the Jewish propaganda uh, that created this idea of Cyrus the Great, and he took it upon himself when he came to power uh, in the early years of the revolution to uh, destroy Pasargadeh. 
Uh, again, oral tale, uh, the late Shapur Shahbaz, if you have somebody from the University of Shiraz here, uh, tells, uh, uh, told me that uh, when he heard that the group of people with Khalkhali were coming to destroy Pasar Gade, he took some of the locals with guns and stopped him uh, from destroying uh, the monument. So these were the native sons of Shiraz trying to defend the, monu- the monument uh, from the new revolutionaries who were trying to, of course, erase the memory of Cyrus as it was too close to the Pathanis. In a sense, in this new Islamic Republic of Iran, ancient Iran was the creation of the Orientalists. It was the Jews who were the main proponents of an idea of a pre-Islamic Iran, which had nothing else but to aim to divide this Muslim Ummah, the unity of the Islamic world. And so Orientalist and Orientalism became uh, favorite topics of publications in the first several decades of the Islamic Revolution. One should not completely uh, blame uh, this paranoia of uh, Sadiq Khalkhali and others. As the first volume of the Cyrus celebration was printed, this is the act, uh, the, con- uh, the acts of the uh, proceedings of this conference in Shiraz, where all the scholars were present. In 1979, an article by the first Prime Minister of Israel, David Ben Gurion, was inserted there, which is quite odd for me, at least, uh, someone who has been long dead. Where uh, in this article, which is rather brief, he says he Cyrus played a decisive role in the first return to Zion. Apparently, Ben-Gurion bringing, of course, the final return to Zion. But later on, there were intellectual, other, if you can call, quote-unquote, intellectual uh, responses uh, to this uh, idea of ancient Iran. So the monuments weren't destroyed. That was not what happened. Rather, now, books were written to completely deny the works of quote-unquote Orientalists. The most famous of these books, uh, which is now probably beyond its tenth publishing, and it's about six volumes. I've read it cover to cover, which is quite fascinating. It's quite, quite fascinating. It's called Twelve Centuries of Silence. And this is a response to another famous text that was written in the late 60s uh, by Abdul Hussein Zarin, if I'm not mistaken, Two Centuries of Silence. That book was about the coming of Islamic conquest where, according to Zarin Kub, for two centuries, that is, in the 8th and 9th centuries, Iranians did not really, were not able to speak their language to write, so we have no evidence. Of course, now that has been debunked. We now have much more documents from the 8th century and the 9th century. Uh, but in response to that famous text, which was under the highly nationalized Pahlavi regime written down, uh, under the early Islamic Republic, Mr. Purpirar writes as such. Who are these people who have forged books for us? Discussing numismatics, coins, to study. So to make the pre-Islamic Iranian dynasties as if they were powerful. But in reality, they were nothing. False views about the Arabs and Islams was brought forth by the Pahlavi regime intellectuals. It only can bring to fruition the desires of the Jews in dividing the people of the Middle East region. So that line of Orientalist sort of idea of division of the Islamic Ummah was quite clear in this. But the 
uh, to sum up this six volume uh, exposition of ancient Iranian history in a very interesting way is as follows. Iranians were simply uncivilized before the coming of Islam. Islam was the civilizing factor. What had happened was that the Orientalists in the University of Chicago and the Barrows Hall of Berkeley and other places uh, were in fact hard at work with Jewish money to propagate an idea of Iran. In fact, uh, this was furthered by the Pahlavi dynasty intellectuals who wrote laudatory books about uh, monarchy, kingship, and antiquity. Ancient Iran was nothing but a great fabrication, a great lie. And when it came to inscriptions and coins, these were all forged by the members of the Oriental Institute. Uh, early as four years, as late as four years ago, I was given in a car a CD which was being handed out for free to people in Tehran, where there was a video again uh, commissioned by Mr. Purpirar about. Uh, Persepolis never being finished because these people had no knowledge how to build anything. And in fact, a Jewish archaeologist, a.k.a. David Stronach, was actually part of this great conspiracy. But that was the second response to this close association of the Pahlavis and Cyrus. The third response was different. By the time of President Khatami, there was a process in rehabilitating Cyrus. This time we had the metamorphosis of Cyrus into something very different, but very interesting. Uh, this is what I call the king who became a prophet. In the Quran, in the Surah Kahf, there is a personage by the name of Zulgarnain, that is the two-horned one. Traditional scholarship uh, has suggested that you can see the coin of Alexander on the right hand side. What we have is the two horns. And so Alexander has been usually associated uh, with uh, this Dolgarnain uh, and Quran. What happened under the Khatami regime was, of course, now a greater knowledge of the Cyrus monuments. For example, this pillar, which exists in Pasar Gade, uh, had once about 200 years ago a triple uh, inscription, a trilingual inscription, Old Persian, Babylonian, and Elamite, in which it said, I, Cyrus, the king, and Achaemenid. And if this was Cyrus, you could clearly see that there are two horns uh, coming out of the crown, the Middle Egyptian crown. And hence, of course, Zulgarnain in the Quran was Cyrus the Great. And so Cyrus entered into the Abrahamic tradition of Shiism. The commentary on the Qurans from the early 70s by Allama Tabo Tabai, that is Sayyid Muhammad Hussein Tabo Tabai on the left, had begun this process. But by the 90s, people such as Ayatollah Mukarram Shirazi, and now at least four or five other Ayatollahs in their commentaries on the Quran have ruled that indeed Dolgarnain is Cyrus the Great. And so, uh, in a sense, if I can say, Cyrus was kosher now to be emulated and to be uh, uh, really honored as such. And this was the next stage in the saga of the ancient Iranians and Cyrus. By the time President uh, 
Ahmadinejad had come to power, he was fully in tune with this idea of antiquity and would use it to its utmost. According to him, Iran had been a great power in the past, and now it certainly was projecting power. And so he can go and stand by the Persepolis monuments, just as the Shah of Iran did. So in effect, the history of Iran wasn't from Cyrus to Muhammad Reza Shah Pahlavi, but Cyrus to Ahmadinejad. He himself also created a pageant to commemorate the coming of the Cyrus Cylinder. If I'm not mistaken, what happened is the Cyrus Cylinder for the first time came to Iran under the presidency of President Ahmadinejad and nobody else. And the pageant was set where an Achaemenid soldier, perhaps uh, Cyrus himself, was uh, given a Basiji shawl and holding the Declaration of Human Rights, uh, where the Basijis with the Islamic Republic's flag uh, were performing on stage. Again, a wonderful, amazing exposition of an Islamic Republic Cyrus. And of course, on the left-hand side, you see uh, President Ahmadinejad uh, and then Neil McGregor, who's all the way to the end, Dr. Vestas Arhosh, our friend, and John Curtis, who are bringing, of course, the Cyrus Cylinder uh, here to San Francisco as well very soon. Uh, they had first made the attempt, to, attempt two years ago uh, to Tehran by traveling, and as they tell me, there was this long motorcade as if there was this imperial procession of the Cyrus Cylinder landing in the National Museum of Iran. And uh, what happened was, after this fanfare, uh, we had uh, the largest visitation to the National Museum of Iran uh, as far as anyone could remember. There were throngs of Iranian Jews praying before the cylinder. And uh, this is the former uh, director of the National Museum was telling me this. And then you had Iranian youth coming and praying before the cylinder. And then you had the Iranian elders coming and praying before the cylinder. It had almost turned into, as one person would say, an Imam Zadeh, right of Khyabunasiyati. <laughs> now, uh, I think this is instructive in some way, to conclude really. Uh, the cylinder was in Tehran two years ago, and now it is in Washington, D.C., coming this way. The message of the cylinder itself, at least, is about peace and freedom of religion or to choose. I think it would be mindful for the leaders of the two powers who claim to be superpowers, and some one may be more powerful than the other one, obviously, <laughs> to take heed of the message of the cylinder itself. I think that would be quite instructive. After all, for the Iranian youth today, what the Cyrus Cylinder represents, regardless of all of what I have just discussed, but for the Iranian youth, for most of them, what it really represents is an aspiration for a multi-ethnic and a multicultural Iran where there is tolerance and freedom for everyone. And I think that's what we can gain from really studying this uh, cylinder today. Thank you. If I can answer any question, if I know the answer, I'll be happy to do so. Sir? I just wanted to point out that the most interesting part of your talk actually happened in 21st century. Uh, but uh, your point I want to make was that you said Muhammad Reza Shah uh, truncated 
at the history of the 2,500 years. What was, was really celebrated was 2,500 years of Iranian empire. What you call kingship, Shanshai, really can translate. And monarchy. I mean, so what happens to the Medes? Were the Medes not an empire? I mean, that's a matter of discourse today, but at least at the time, we certainly knew there was a Median, at least, empire, right? The book already in the 19, early 60s, Diakonov's book, the Medes had been translated into Persian, in Bongai Tarjume, under Yarshatar's direction, so we knew there were Medes. What about the Elamites? What about the earlier uh, sort of civilizations? So what happened is this new vision that you might call it an empire, I would even say kingship or this connection of this continuous kingship, truncated a large part of it. And what else it did was, of course, to uh, do away with our traditional narrative of history, right? Uh, and that was, in a way, somewhat dangerous, perhaps, for the Pahlavis, as Ali Ansari has suggested, uh, that in the Shahnameh you have figures such as Kaveh, right? who was certainly used by the leftists, right? Uh, so that was problematic. And the Shahs are not always great in the Shahnameh, right? Shahnameh is not about celebration of kingship, per se. Many kings have faults, right? It's about Iran and the importance of Iran. On the other hand, you had uh, people like Siavash, who was martyred, right? That really connected itself to the martyrdom of Hussein. So he had all of these possibilities within the narrative tradition of Iran. But this thing was something wholly new, completely alien, and it could be used in any way you wanted. Sir, and sir. Just a quick question. Why is so much of the part beyond <coughs> dynasty and empire in terms of everything, why is so much of it missing? That's Dr. Qaynimati should be answering this rather than myself because she worked on Kuwakhaja. If it's Parthian, I don't know. You can't even debate on could be. Uh, I just would say Sasanias destroyed much of the past in terms of historical narrative. But in terms of monuments, you might want to say something. The monuments uh, were destroyed a lot during the Mongol invasion. You know, we assume that it was a lot of it destroyed by the Sasanians, but um, we, we really don't know who destroyed what. And but I mean, all, all the dynasties were destroyed at some point, but particularly the Parthians, it's just such a big blank. Actually, it's not Professor Mary Boyce, uh, he, her uh, late <coughs> Professor Boyce, her uh, fourth volume, which is on Parthian period, is coming out. Uh, it's co-authored uh, with uh, Franz Grenet. It's on their print, and it's uh, actually it's it's a lot of information there, but uh, we don't have much publication available. But it's it's happening. And some of the monuments are outside of Iran proper. For example, Nisa, yes. the great sort of the necropolis, or is it's outside of Iran proper? Great Iran. Think of the great Iran. Side. But also the other thing is that Parthian, I mean, trans transformation from Parthian to Sasanian. It wasn't a sudden event. So uh, if you study the architecture, for example, of the two era, you could see that this change came really gradually. Uh, it was synchronized into the new uh, dynasty. Sir, thank you. So I, I want to go back to the title of the talk that, that talks about use and abuse of, of these uh, historical Yes. Uh, aspects of ancient era. And, and I'd like you to sort of define what you consider to be a use and what you consider to be a use. Uh -huh. 
watching your presentation, I wasn't really sure. Good. That, that was purposeful. So, depending on your uh, political proclivities, I let you decide to see what was the use and the abuse. I was just simply narrating what I thought was taking place. But I'm interested in your respect. My respect? Why? I'm just like another person have a, uh, actually, you know, response. Okay. Uh, I, I think I think every one of these dynasties in some ways are using and at times abusing history for their own ends. They're just doing it very differently. Uh, the Qajars uh, really, I think, were the, the ones who brought out these ideas, but uh, they really didn't abuse it. But they did certainly use it, right, by putting inscriptions and whatnot. The Pahlavi dynasty did something very different. It became very close with it. It became infused in this propagation of ancient Iran, which I'm all for, but it came out under the guise of this continuous monarchy and so on. So I think that is the abuse, right? Islamic Republic of Iran, what it does is responds vehemently against this, right? So first, uh, as I was in grade school in Iran, you know, uh, of course, these kings were all evil. Persepolis was built on the back of slaves and it was horrible, right? And uh, in time, uh, they saw the, the way that they can actually use or in a way abuse this idea of greatness. Once Iran became a superpower in the region, then it actually could go back in the repository of history and pull some of these things back and resuscitate, for example, Cyrus the Great and the Achaemenids. Uh, so that's not a very straight answer, but then that's, I think I hope we could leave it as such. So, so just, just one commentary. It, it, it appears to me that they're all using no, not abusing. I mean, they're, they're all using it to advance their objectives. And, and so, so this is where I was struggling to see um, what differentiates the use from an abuse. And, and I appreciate yeah. the fact that it depends on perspective. But, but nevertheless, each, in each instance that you just mentioned, they are actually utilizing, using this information for, for their intended purpose. If you look at these monuments, uh, for example, Pasargade, as you can see here on the here, do you see this? I would call this for the celebration of the 25th hundredth anniversary. All of the pillars were removed; have never been put back. All the area was cleared off, and I think for an archaeologist, that is an abuse. That is an abuse for any purpose to use a monument under any guise, and to change it drastically, to put on a stage, or th that is an abuse. Okay? That is an abuse. Uh, you, sir, and then back, and then back. Yes? Um, it's actually a continuation of the previous question, and uh, maybe part of that was answered already. So the question I, I have is that uh, the way I see it, uh, it looks like uh, these kings uh, or back, for example, to the Qajar period, see that Iran, in terms of a country or uh, a kingship, is very weak compared to you know, uh, European countries who are trying to uh, get it under control. So, and then the people look back and see, uh, while we are such a great empire and so powerful, perhaps they try to use it Okay, to give themselves a boost, boost you know, Absolutely. to get it back. So I agree. Do you think that's a, that's a legitimate use? Or? 
Sure, I think every uh, civilization, the Italians do the same thing, the Egyptians do the same thing, the Greeks do the same thing, right? That's not, that not necessarily... That's not abuse. That's used. Certainly it's used. Uh, so you could bring, of course, legitimacy to a civilization and its people. You could boast or boost the, the king, the idea of kingship part of it, okay? Uh, it depends what aspect of it you want to highlight, of course. Uh, sir, uh, yes? Uh, during your talk, you mentioned uh, the 12th century's of silence, yes. which was uh, a fabrication in contrast to Dr. Zabin Kluge's... Uh, it wasn't a fabrication, it was a response. Right, but it sounded like it was a fabrication. It sounded like it was debunking the 200 years of silence written by Dr. Zabin Kluge. So uh, what I'm trying to ask is, I miss the fact that you said uh, 200 years of silence was that totally false, or it was true, uh, parts of it were fabricated? So, uh, the two centuries of silence written by uh, Dr. Zarin Kub was written in the late 60s under this heightened nationalist Pahlavi reign, where he himself, uh, under later publications of the text, actually recanted some of this idea. Now, this could be because of after the revolution he was forced to do so, but he did write that I was in a sort of nationalist mode when I wrote this, but uh, we now know today with the documents that are being just f f they're being found as we speak. I mean, just this past month, uh, about uh, 40 letters from Tabaristan from the 8th century, exactly the time of science. These are legal documents in Pahlavi have been found. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, at Berkeley in the Bancroft Library, I gave a talk, there are 240 letters from the 8th and 9th century, exactly the period that we're talking about when there's uh, silence. Uh, in terms of, I think, material finds, our idea of 8th and 9th century is completely now changed from what we had in the 1960s. Now, the title was what is, was the response to it. Two centuries of silence? No. Twelve centuries of silence. Ancient Iran was completely, well, there was nothing, and then you silenced us for twelve centuries. Uh, and then I'll go to you, sir, and you, sir, and then you, sir. Sorry, I just wanted to add something that the foreign literature, non-Iranian literature, the German and the French had a lot to do with the abuse part uh, of, of the dynasties, different dynasties, with uh, Jean Gabin, who was the first uh, uh, ambassador to Iran from France. <coughs> he wrote a huge uh, volume of literature and compiling, you know, different things of Iran, and that had a lot influence during the Pahlavi uh, regime, uh, mostly with the abuse part. <laughs> Thank you. Sir, back. So, so, so that two quick questions you didn't mention. Uh, one is actually when Reza Shah named the dynasty Pahlavi. So apparently he kind of took the interest in maybe society Persian or early on. What happened then? And then the other is, I think uh, if I remember correctly, early in, in Reza Shah's times, they asked uh, the international community to now cause Iran instead of Persia. How is that related to this? Okay, so the first one, the idea of related to the Pahlavi here, the Pahlavani, or sort of this heroic era, and choosing that, that's again harkens to the ancient Iran. It was an achaemenate. You're absolutely correct. And that may have come before he had taken that very intense interest in uh, the achaemenate period. 
The second thing is to ask the foreign uh, embassies to call this country not Persia anymore in English, but rather Iran, uh, has this dubious past. There are several ideas of who may have told Reza Shah that, Your Majesty, this is the country of Iran, which we call Iran, of course, within Iran, which uh, uh, goes back to the land of this, the Aryans. And, uh, this is our, and this is the time when, of course, there's heightened state of nationalism, and also the Nazis are on the other side, you should remember. Many of the uh, sort of German scholars, and I don't want to accuse anybody because three of my four professors were German, so that is not the case, were highly interested in Indo-Iranian studies these most ancient Aryans at the time. Now, Herzfeld, if he did say that, he could have, and of course he was Jewish, and he was decommissioned when Hitler, actually after a couple of years. But uh, it may have been some of these Orientalists, to go back to the discourse of the Islamists, that suggested uh, also in the foreign correspondence, what you, why don't you call this place Iran? But we're not sure exactly of the person who has told uh, Reza Shah to do so. Okay, so it was you, sir, it was uh, uh, Professor Brookshaw, and then you, and you, sir. Please. Um, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about Reza Shah, and even going into the second pandemic period, that there is, um, at the same time that they're becoming more and more interested, it would appear slightly in the Sasanians and then the Achaemenids, they also partly try and mix that with Islamic period, and um, with Ferdowsi, like what he does in you know, the 1930s in terms of Ferdowsi's tomb is a very interesting mixture of these two things. You know, to build something that looks like Cyrus's tomb for Ferdowsi is actually a marrying of the, the thing that you're suggesting gets kind of left behind. But the other thing that Reza Shah does and his son continues is that they make you know, this style of monument for all of the great poets and thinkers of Iran, certainly of the Islamic period. So it's a, you know, it's not it's not necessarily that they kind of ignore that altogether. Absolutely. And actually, it's quite a confused picture, I think, for yeah. how they see Iran's greatness. Uh, you can find as many stamps of, you know, Ebnesinar's tomb. Uh, not only Afshina Marashi in his book in sort of uh, ideas about uh, Tuma Ferdowsi but also Talin Grigor have done wonderful job in about to how to make a modern nation and of course you need these important points of identity to have monuments and have great monuments to commission them to stand out and certainly that's something that with Reza Shah and his team really begin to take shape but I don't think as you said there's this clear idea of should we go Akimenet you know all of these are important. I think by Muhammad as a Shah Pahlavi, this process continues, but there's certainly a shift to the Cyrus in the early by the 70s. I mean, that is, Shahnameh is pushed aside, although that's important, but it's not what the government is really propagating. Uh, Takht Jamshid or Persepolis is important for certain ceremonies, but that is really a Reza Shah preoccupation. I think more than a, a Pasar Gade with Muhammad Reza Shah. But that may be just making things for Mifasal to move from sacred text or an epic text to one monument to another monument. That may be just my uh, sort of reading into it. Okay, sir, in the back? Yes? Okay. <laughs> Um, so I have two part questions. One is maybe a little, you know, like technical based on your knowledge of what has happened prior to the Ajars, right? Where were there other kings like during 
Oh boy. That okay. basically try to you know use and abuse as you put it in any form that you want. Then the second part is somewhat speculative and I wanted to know your opinion. It seems to me that we have had this basic, you know, like Iranianness versus the Muslimness of Iranians after the arrival of Islam to Iran. And we sort of go back and forth doing different areas. Of course, it's more pronounced as of late. What is your speculation about, like, you know, and this is a speculation, right? Yeah, Sorry speculation. Bring it in, but we are Iranian, so we have to go in that. Like, this Mashaiz approach, where he's trying to sort of reconcile, as far as I can see, the Iranianness and the Muslimness as far as. Yeah, so answer the second question, I mean, what Mash are you doing is, is this new response to antiquity, right. right? So we're having stages of responses. Destroy monuments. They're Pahlavi sort of. No. Well, maybe this guy can be co-opted. You know, co-opted. Now we're powerful. This is how we were, and now that's how we are. And maybe this idea of Muslim identity and uh, sort of Iranian identity uh, has the, a new philosophical outlook, if we can call that under Mashaid, the Iranian Muslim nationalist, or whatever you want to call this, as this new alternative to our sort of, do I say, bicultural sort of view of things, which some people think it's at odds. I have no issues. I really don't think about it so much. I don't have any trouble. I'm happy with ancient Iran, and I think Islamic Iran or the post-ancient Iran is also fabulous and very interesting. All the same, I have no value judgment for before or after it. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, prior kings, we can go all the way back to at least Mardavich, the Ziyarat rulers in the 10th, 11th century, who attempted to destroy the Kaaba. Right, who crowned himself, who put on the Jashn Sadeh, the fire festival in Esfahan, who made the new capital there, who had, you know, and up north there, there were very interesting things going on. So that's some sort of a use of antiquity, but it was very close to the past. I don't think there was a rupture, there's a continuity in the Islamic period. But uh, even the Safavids, well, the Safavids, I mean, celebrated Nowruz, if you can call that something ancient. I'm not sure if you want to do that or not, but certainly the Safavids had huge pomp and circumstances uh, uh, when it came to the Nowruz, uh, the idea of a king of Iran. So some of these ideas were being used, and probably there were more uh, here and there. But it really, with the Qajars, I think there's a turn. There's a turn with the Qajars. And in front here, and then back and back. Yes, no question. No. Uh, I have one comment about the pillars that you mentioned. Yes. I'm sure that you must be aware of this. I read somewhere that um, actually they were not originally there and yeah, uh, was ordered by one of the first uh, governors uh, to, to, to bring them there and make <coughs> mosque. mosque of mother of uh, Solana. So, so the reason that we don't see them here now is because they actually thought that they so they're going back to the original. Yes. You should ask an archaeologist if you're allowed to <laughs> desecrate sort of anything that has remained from the past to get the original. How do we know how uh, really Cyrus's yeah, tomb looked like? And so you don't touch things, right? At least for my money, you don't say, oh, I like that part of it, right? I'm not saying that they did a good thing, but I said the reason probably is that because I thought that they, they were brought and, Could be. you know, many years later. Yeah, clean up the place. I mean, you need to go and back there, sir. Please, yes. Thank you. Um, going back to the talk 
discussion and presentation. Uh, abuse and abuse. Uh, and you mentioned again about these pillars being removed, whether they were original or not. And it's just an observation, like you know, even from an archaeologist perspective, what do you think about you know them carving out the huge sections of the whether it's Pasargad or Persopolis uh, and like taking it to a different country, oh. and, you know, wall to wall in the British Museum right now. Oh, these are museum studies and archaeologists could deal about symptoms of empire. When empires uh, build empires, they like to collect goodies from their sort of the regions that they control, and they bring it to their own people to see, look, where we rule over. I think the Assyrians did this first. The Assyrians actually, in antiquity, created the first sort of museums and so on. But certainly uh, the French and the British, and to some extent the Germans, and of course later on the Americans, I think uh, followed that idea of projection of power. So you took whole uh, sections of it. And that is, uh, of course, something to be debated about. So these uh, groups go and excavate Pasar Gade or Persepolis and bring it, uh, they unearth it, right? So now we could see it. But some sections of it was taken, of course, right? They ended up in the Oriental Institute. And parts of these things, I think, actually sank. There was a whole cargo of ship that, of the Persepolis monument that is in the bottom of uh, Persian Gulf, right? Yeah. yeah. So things just got destroyed in the middle of the way. I'm not happy about it, but I'm just saying. So uh, throughout time, attrition, uh, as well as you know, movement of things by people, uh, certainly has changed it from what it is. I just think these things should just be kept as they are. We have a refinery that was built in the 40s or 50s in Shiraz. I don't know. There was the gentleman from here. You know, 60. So that's some sort of major damage to this, I think, uh, Persepolis. The thing is to shut off that uh, refinery. That's the first thing that should be done. Right? But I'm not in charge. I can scream, and that's of no use. If I really want to do something, I go and help make something happen rather than actually talking about it. The sensation of that, you can't see it in this picture, and you might be able to help. I was fortunate enough to go to visit Pasargard 14 years ago. And it's very majestic. Captured, captivated by the, 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 the magnificence. But uh, there is a building, there's a structure not far from the tomb. Zendana Madar Suleiman. Right. And I asked the guy, talk about the Sundial? No, I asked him, like, what is this structure? He said either it's a sundial or an observatory. No, tell me what is no, it is. No, no, no. If, if you are talking about the same structure, it's a one that there's just it's one wall standing. No, no, it's a building. It's like a. It's the chateau that was yeah, the French archaeological. It's nothing to do with it. Is it? And anyhow, long story short, I asked guys, what is this structure? And he said, there some, at some period, it was being used as a restroom. It's the chateau. But that's in Susa. It's in Susa. That's in Susa. Next to it, there is a. Okay, well, yeah, but that's the archaeolo- the archaeologists built something by Persepolis, but the Alamiras Farangi, the national, there's bathrooms, there's everything there. No, it was a I haven't come across it. So, things use that, this is very bad. Exactly. There were a couple of more questions. Sir, back there. Uh, I wanted to mention two points which could be added to your speech. The first, Mandu concluded that uh, uh, our name is Cyrus. Abul Kalam Azad. Yes, I know. Ayatollahs that also are most the followers of Abul Kalam Azad. 
the second point is that uh, you mentioned Nasserpur Pirol Group as one response. No, this man has no followers uh, in Iran because uh, although he is the editor of a Persian book, on Marikov, uh, he in the last few years he has started to say something which is different from anybody else, even not about the antiquity uh, and uh, Iran, uh, ancient Iran. Even for Saadi, he has written a book and uh, it says that he has never gone out of Shiraz and what uh, he has written about the history or all lay and uh, are not true. So uh, I, I, I think it was not uh, uh, very nice to uh, mention him. Yeah, to mention so. him as a <laughs> I beg, I, I kindly beg to differ because one, I have been attacked several times at the British Institute of Persian Studies when it was open when I gave a talk, as well as a few other places by the young students and followers of Mr. Poor Pirar, who attend lectures nowadays and say what you're saying are all lies and concoction of the West. When you have students coming to you and telling you, students from University of Tehran, that now I understand what is going on because the late Professor Tafazuli couldn't answer these questions and now I read it in Poor Pirar, there is some traction. When the book gets translated into uh, several languages, and then uh, just recently, I think it was Prager, uh, a uh, Azarin uh, separatist uh, mentions Purpirar as a great historian of ancient Iran as his main source. Uh, there seems to have been traction. And it, he's doing what he's doing. It is gaining uh, some interest. So it is not for no reason that I'm mentioning him. However insignificant and ridiculous his ideas may be. Sir. Uh, I'm, yes? Uh, I'm Egyptian, uh, Egyptian American. In Egypt, people, at least as of like 20, 20 years ago, yes. 30 years ago, would readily accept that there are many different stages. Egypt, it was ancient Egyptian, it was Greek, it was Roman, uh, it was Christian, it was Islamic. Islamic. Different kinds of Islamic. Yes. All were celebrated, you know, and then, you know, pan-Arabism and, you know, social. No, sir, and so on, yes. Now, Islamic, more, you know, but in the regular ancient Egyptian, and the regular Egyptian person of the street, all these were um, accepted. Mm. And Egypt is not very different from Iran. I don't think the people have it. It's, I agree. It's I've, I've been there for a while. I, I, I uh, see it somewhere. Sure. Why is this a, a question? Why is this a different? Why, why the difference in Iran of accepting that you have know, multiple heritage? Uh, so. It's the way that the Egyptian government... Yeah. So why is it in Egypt? Let me answer this one. Why is it in Egypt as opposed to Iran? In Iran, there's this difficulty accepting all of these heritage, the Islamic, which I have no problem with. Uh, but in Egypt, that, is, that seems to be quite common. I think until the use of history by specific dynasties and really at the cost of other sort of time periods, okay, uh, you begin to have this sort of, I would say, schizophrenic idea of the past, right? But that part was great. These guys came and destroyed it. And especially if you're an Egyptian, you should also discuss the idea of Egyptian versus Arab. 
That is something that I think the intellectuals very much engage in in Egypt. And for Iranians, the idea of Arabic equating with Islam and they being non-Arab, and this idea of identity and looking to ancient world has created that schism. Where in Egypt, although you have all these layers, as long as the government hasn't used it, right, uh, it's not a problem. Unless you call Hosni Mubarak the Pharaoh of the sort of time, right? If he's like projecting himself as the Pharaoh or something, then the Pharaohs may kind of seem iffy. Uh, but that's not the case, uh, certainly in Egypt. I agree with you. But in Iran, there is that sort of a schizophrenic idea of it. It was Nasser, it was the first Egypt since the time of the Pharaohs. Yeah, great, because then they were friends with Shah. So that, that worked very good, the ancient kings and the modern uh, sort of the rulers. Yes, the second one. The, the, uh, I have seen uh, see pictures of uh, watched a documentary about the Iranian balladeers, uh, uh, people who are storytellers with... Uh, with curtains. Uh, with curtains and pictures and stuff like that, and they tell a story from there is to Alexander the Great and, you know, uh, yeah. bad, you know, this and yes, and that's a that's a movie by Michael Woods, the In Search of Alexander. Yeah. How is this? So I, I'm assuming that this is uh, well known, in, you know, amongst the villagers. Uh, how how is this reconciled with now Alexander is a prophet? Hmm, that's a very good. Well, Alexander is not the prophet. It's Cyrus has become the prophet, right? It's not Alexander. But Alexander is accepted into the, in the Iranian traditional narrative. He's accepted as a ruler. He's a brother, half-brother of Darius, Dara. Now, I mean, this is explained one as sort of pseudo-Kalistini's influence, uh, sort of Alexander romance, which had entered Iran. We should remember, after Alexander comes and the Seleucids come into power, there, as uh, Omid Salar, my colleague, has mentioned, uh, these are uh, the next rulers are children of Iranian women and uh, Macedonian, Greco-Macedonian men. You have to somehow reconcile this new narrative of who are these Irano-Macedonians ruling over Iran, and hence an idea is concocted of sort of he's our the half brother who actually took the power, and so there is continuation. Although there is a missing of the Seleucids right in the Persian Book of Epic. Okay. Uh huh. No more questions. Uh, okay. Uh, Professor Brooksha just ordered me to stop. Uh, thank you very much. Well,